you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, the first question um, I think we should probably grapple with is who is John the Baptist? So John the Baptist is, um, is proclaiming this message. He's reading the Old Testament passage. He's telling people to repent. He's the one who's saying all the things that we just read. So who is this person? Well, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, um, Jesus has been born. So Jesus exists as a person um, on earth, but he hasn't been baptized yet, and he hasn't started his earthly ministry. So Jesus has not begun uh, traveling or proclaiming um, anything yet. It's like John has just come, just preceding Jesus to be the final preparer for Jesus' ministry on earth, right? He's tasked to uh, get the people of God ready to welcome Christ. It's kind of like if your grandma or relative is coming over for dinner and they just pulled into the driveway, right? Like you're scrambling, making final preparations for her arrival. You're finishing cleaning rooms and pulling food out of the oven. It's, it's very much akin to that. This is the final preparation before Jesus begins his ministry. And John is doing this. He's amassed this following of people who are hearing the things he's talking about, and they're, they're listening to what John is saying, but he's trying to point them to Jesus. So uh, let's read um, what he says in chapter, 32, or chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, uh, the word of God came, not to the priests, but to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went all around the region of the Jordan, which is a river, uh, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John is baptizing people, which gets a little confusing because we have baptism as well, but ours is different, right? Very simply, uh, we won't spend a ton of time on this, but the baptism that John is doing is a, uh, a preparatory baptism. It's simply a washing of sin. The text says it's a baptism of repentance. It's a, it's a cleansing baptism. And so that's, that's John's baptism. The baptism that we practice is a baptism into the church. It's a baptism in the name of the Father and Son and Spirit into the covenant community. So our baptism is not devoid of repentance. Repentance is certainly wrapped up in that baptism. Um, but more importantly, our baptism signifies belonging to the church in the name of the triune God. Um, it's an appeal to God's grace and saving, right? We're, we say when we baptize, we're buried with Christ in a death like his and raised to walk in newness of life. Um, so we're not washing off sin in the sacrament. We are counting ourselves as Christ's people. And as such, we remember that our sin has been cleaned through his death and resurrection, not through the water. Uh, there's a little bit of nuance there, but, but, but it's significant nuance, right? We don't practice baptism to remove sin. We baptize in recognition of sin that has been removed by Christ. It's kind of the easiest way to, to describe it. Um, so John is fulfilling this preparatory role in Israel, right? He's not just baptizing. He's also preaching and teaching. He preaches Isaiah 40 here in verse 4, which is Old Testament prophecy relating to the Messiah. And he says this, um, Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, very much, John sees his tasks as a, and this is the task that God has given him, a voice in the wilderness that is crying, 
Prepare for God. Prepare for Emmanuel. This is why in Luke 3, 7, um, John preaches this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, he's pointing to rocks on the ground, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So at this point in history, um, being an ethnic Jew or a convert to Judaism meant that you believed that you were part of God's people. But John is saying something new and kind of startling to the people in the region. He's proclaiming judgment on them and calling them to repentance, right? Like historically, they assumed their status as God's people because of who they were born as. And he's saying, yes, You've said Abraham is your father. Abraham is the, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. He's a, all of his descendants, God said, would be a great nation, his people for his own possession, God's people. But God says, or John now says, well, God could make these rocks into Abraham's children if he so desires. Which is to say that John is saying your defense is not good enough. Your defense does not hold water. He says the axe is laid at the tree. So the tree is commonly used in the Old Testament and certainly the New Testament as a metaphor for God's people, the church. And, and John is very much saying um, this tree doesn't bear fruit and therefore God in judgment will chop it down. He will cut the tree down. And he's saying if you don't repent and come to God, then you will be chopped down as well. The reality is the people of God at this point in history, the Israelites, have been sinful. They are in exile because they have become idol worshipers. They have not been faithful to God in trust. They have not worshipped Yahweh. They have not been devoted to Yahweh. This all really goes back to the garden when Adam chose sin instead of devotion to God. Therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But really, the exile that they're now experiencing really ties to Mount Sinai, when Moses gives them the law, they hear from God directly. God speaks to the people of Israel. What happens? They say, don't speak to us again. That's too scary for us to hear. And then a couple days later, they fashion a golden calf and worship that. So God, in patience, uh, holds off the exile for hundreds of years, but, but it's still a result of their idolatry. And so God's people have been re rebellious and and. John says God is standing with an axe at the base of the tree. He's ready to chop down the tree. And so John continues to preach repentance here. And then the crowds hearing this, they're getting startled. The first thing they do, we're told, is they, they ask, what shall we do in John 10? Or, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 3, verse 10. And then he says this, John answered them, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And the tax collectors say, well, we're tax collectors. What should we do? And John's, or, or, yeah, John the Baptist says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he says, don't exhort money from anyone by threats or accusations that are false. Be content with what you make. I mean, John is simply saying, repent and do good works. Repent or turn from sin and turn towards 
good works. Do good and stop doing bad. If you have extra, give it away. Be generous. Consider your profession. If you're a tax collector, he says, be honest, right? Tax collectors are known in the region as cheaters and liars. They go and they say, hey, you owe $50 in taxes when you really owe $40 in taxes, and they keep the delta, they keep the 10. John just says, just do your job honestly, tax collectors. And then the soldiers come. What should we do, John? He says, stop abusing your power. Stop using your power for injustice and start using it for justice. Don't use your profession. The soldiers shouldn't be known as those who bring injustice, is what John says. Avoid the sins of your profession. So maybe that's, that's something we can kind of chew on this week as you consider your profession. What are the sins of your profession? What are the temptations of your profession? John says don't cheat people out of money. Don't abuse your power. Turn away from that and get ready. And so the people are hearing this teaching and they're jumping to one conclusion, it tells us in the next section. Is this Christ? Is this the Messiah? This guy is talking with authority. He's interpreting the Old Testament. He's baptizing to clean sin. Is this the Messiah? And John is is very quick to correct. Remember, he's the preparer. Um, He is not the one. He is the one who has been sent by God to get Israel ready for the one. He's the best man at the wedding. He's telling the guests, look, the groom's about to come in. Let's get ready. Like, it seems like the wedding's about to start. The best man, we're not here for the best man. The best man is to get us ready. That's very much John's role. And so when he said, when they say, is this Christ, he says this in verse 16, I baptize you with water, remember the, the repentance water, but he who is mightier than I is coming whose strap sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you, not with water, but the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, his people into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So John says, he who is mighty is coming. Remember, different baptisms. I'm baptizing in repentance and preparation, but he who is coming will baptize with God himself, the Holy Spirit, and fire. Fire is used twice in this passage for two separate meanings. Um, fire, firstly, is used in baptism, which just means purification, right? Like we see uh, how fire and heat are used to purify metals. When you, when you heat up metal, it purifies by the imperfections rising to the top. We see how this corresponds with baptism, right? When you enter into the covenant community, you receive the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit starts the work of sanctification in us, and works that out until we die or Christ returns. So imperfections are like fire, we're being purified. So for God's people, the Messiah has come to gather up his people and sanctify them, purify them. But also, fire is used in judgment, right? Fire burns the chaff. Fire burns the wicked in judgment. So there's only two ways that fire will work here. It's either purification or judgment, We get this imagery of this one who is coming, gathering up his people and dividing his people between those who are not, which is, it turns out, exactly what Jesus has come to do, to build this kingdom for himself, gathering up his children and separating them from the world. If we go back to the passage that John quoted from Isaiah, verses 4 and 5 in that passage, 
Um, it says this, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth uh, of the Lord has spoken. John is saying there is one who is coming to create equity among the peoples. Those who are low, lowly in the valley will be raised and those who are high in the, like the mountains will be lowered. This is the type of kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish and is establishing a kingdom of justice and equity. And as the kingdom is revealed from the mouth of God himself, all flesh will hear it and see it. Not just the ethnic Jews, not just those ethnically children of Abraham, but now all flesh will, will be revealed the word of God. So these are very much the three messages of John in this passage. Judgment and wrath are due to us if we're sinful. The tree is ready to be chopped down. God's people are ready to be cut off from his blessing. Therefore, repent. Turn from sin and turn towards fruit. Bear fruit. Do good things. And then he kind of ends it with, yet one is coming. He who will purify through baptism. And he will call his people to him and save them by gathering them himself. This is the, the kind of last message that the people of Israel hear before Jesus starts his ministry. But what does it have to do with Christmas? Why, in preparation for Christ, must the Israelites repent and do good work? So for the Jewish people, uh, the days of prophecy up until John now, the days of prophecy regarding a Savior are, are 600 years in the past. All of those prophecies shared a common link. They talked about a coming Savior, but they also rebuked Israel for her sinfulness, her idolatry. They had denied God and given themselves in many ways to sin and idolatry and legalism, all because of sin, right? All because all of us, Scripture says, fall short uh, of the glory of God. No man or woman, it turns out, in Israel and really now are able to avoid sinning and able to walk in the righteousness that we're called to live in. So we can start to feel the gravity of this moment for the Israelites, right? The people feel like they're on the edge. God has very much said he's going to do something to save them, and yet here they are still marked by sin and exile and surrounded by death and decay and all the things that sin has wrought on the world in justice. And so John is saying, have you forgotten your sinfulness? It's very much what he's calling them to. Remember your sinfulness. Turn from your sinfulness. So maybe, maybe you're in the room this morning and you don't think you're sinful at all, and therefore you don't need saving, right? John is saying you need saving. Maybe that resonates you with you this Christmas. Maybe, there, maybe this resonates with you. Instead, there, there's death or sorrow in your story, and you're just waiting on God to do something. Maybe there are old sins that keep creeping up in your life that you've tried to kill over and over and over again, or maybe there are new ones that have come up in this season that you've repented of, and you just feel worn down by your sin. Um, I remember the first Christmas where I was really conscious of my sin. I was in seventh grade, um, and I just, it, it was the first, it's not that I was a perfect angel before, I was a sinful kid, um, but that was the year that I remember habitually falling into sin and feeling like it was marking me, like that I was marked by sin. 
Um, and what struck me about that Christmas is it just didn't feel magical anymore. Maybe you have a, a memory like that. The joy that I felt as a little kid uh, felt stained as I kind of grew in awareness of my sin. It wasn't magical anymore. I, I felt like I was broken, and maybe the whole season was broken with it. Maybe this is you this Christmas. Maybe you're just kind of like, whatever word you want to use, it doesn't feel magical or joyful or holly and jolly. It, it just doesn't feel like Christmas. I want to challenge you this morning because, and really myself, because I, think, I actually think this is kind of an appropriate station for where we are in the calendar. Advent is almost this mini Lent, like we're anticipating a time where a Savior would come. We're anticipating a time where a Savior is born. Even though we look back at the event of Christ's birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, we can look back at all those things. We still feel and, and really experience the brokenness of the world around us and the chaos that's all around or within us this Christmas. John is yelling at the crowds to repent, to become aware of the sinfulness again. He's not, he's not angry He's calling them to good works, knowing that if they turn from their sin and try and attempt to do good works on their own, that they'll fail. He's hoping that their sinfulness is revealed to them. Why? So they'll awaken to their need of a Savior. He wants them to need it and to know that they need it. In order to prepare him room, as the hymn says, let every heart prepare him room, we have to grieve our sin. Sin in our lives, sin in our hearts. In order to prepare him room, we have to grieve the brokenness around us and within us. Whether that's sickness, death, relationships that are broken, whatever it may be. And it's in this posture that we're not allowed to divorce ourselves from the realities of Christmas. We anticipate something better. We anticipate one who will come and remove sin and remove sorrow and purify with a baptism of fire and gather up his bride, the church, to make her righteous. In order to welcome the Savior and celebrate his birth, we have to believe that we need one. In order to welcome the Savior and celebrate his birth, we have to believe that we need a Savior. Whether you believe that you need a Savior or not is irrelevant. It doesn't change the fact that you need one. So how do we know, like, as people in preparation for this, how do you know that, that Christ's birth is for you, that the Savior is for you? How can you know if you're one of the ones that Christ has been sent to save? Well, to quote the hymn, um, the only fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. What a, what a beautiful line. I wish I could go back to my middle school self um, and tell him, of course you're sinful. Of course you're sinful. Of course you need a Savior. All that God requires of you, all that Jesus requires of you, is that you be honest. Not for your shame. Admit your need of him and receive what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It turns out Christ's table is only for those who bring their brokenness and receive forgiveness. It's only for the forgiven. And that forgiveness is offered to all who would come with their brokenness. You are in good company here if you, like me, are constantly being made more and more aware of your sinfulness and brokenness. I don't know why I keep 
being surprised over and over again that I'm more sinful than I thought. That's only a beautiful reality. Listen, that's only a beautiful reality if my surprise of my sinfulness is met with a new surprise of Christ's grace and forgiveness. If I wake up more and more and more to my need of a Savior and simultaneously wake up more and more to the fact that Christ is it, he is, he is the one. This is what he requires. Believe you are sinful and believe that you need a Savior and believe that you have one. Believe that you've been forgiven. Believe that he lived the perfect life free of sin, that he received punishment on our behalf and he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death to purchase you in forgiveness. Um, the acts that John is talking about in his, um, in his message of repentance, it is swung. The tree is chopped down, but the tree is not lost. Isaiah 11.1 1 says this, in reference to Christ, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is the stump of Israel. The tree has been chopped down due to wickedness, but from that stump, a shoot drives up and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That shoot bears fruit. That shoot grows into the tree of the church. In Christ, the axe of judgment is swung, but the tree is not destroyed. Christ himself grows up, and from that growth, a tree grows. And it's not just the ethnic Jews this time. It's for all who would believe in Jesus. It's for all who believe they fall short, and all who believe through Christ, they're saved and forgiven. For the people of God, the axe of judgment does fall, but it doesn't fall on us. The axe of judgment falls on Christ, it falls on the Son who does not deserve the wrath, but it falls on him for the sake of a new and better tree, the church. Christ hangs on a tree in our place. Dead branches are pruned. New branches, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people are grafted in. This is the good news of the gospel. Abraham is not only the father of just one people group, but he's actually the father of the, the verse tells us, and the book of Hebrews will go on to explain, he's the father of all who believe in Jesus. Our sin and the brokenness of the world should drive us to a place of, of humility. Humility because we realize that we're all broken humans in a broken world, surrounded by brokenness, in need of someone to take all of this brokenness and fix it. And Advent should simultaneously lead us to assurance. We should be assured that somebody has come to fix the brokenness. It's Jesus. The mission is accomplished. That's why the news of his birth is called what? Tidings of comfort and great joy. So now we live, as we find ourselves often saying on Sunday, we live in this in-between. At Advent, we look back at when God came to earth as a man with a mission to save his people that he succeeded in. And simultaneously, we look forward to the time when he returns to finalize that victory applied to his people. So how do we prepare him room in this season? Well, we wait well. We wait well. We wait the second, we await the second advent, the second coming of Christ. We believe in him. We have faith in him. We have faith that he has saved us. 
and in that great freedom of belief and forgiveness, that's when we're sent the Holy Spirit of God who now enables us to turn from our sin. That's when we get the Holy Spirit of God who enables us not only to turn from sin, but to grow in generosity and humility and love by the power of the Spirit. We're sanctified into righteousness. We grow up in the image of Christ. We become like Jesus. And as we do, we proclaim the good news that Christ has come and offered forgiveness to all who would call upon his name. We herald the message of forgiveness. When we come to the table, we very much celebrate the in-between, the broken body and shed blood in the sacrament remind us of what has happened, right? They remind us of where the acts of justice fell. And at the same time, the wine and bread remind us of a banquet that awaits us when Christ returns. How we look forward to that day. I can't wait to recline with you at that table, at that banquet table as we in the meantime, love one another well, give each other of a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that awaits us by being hospitable to one another and our neighbors, the hospitality that we show finding its ultimate truth in our extension of the gospel of forgiveness. We, we have to tell our neighbors, you need a savior. And it's okay, because we need a savior too, and one has come. Let's pray. in a posture of prayer right now, would you um, invite the Lord to remind you of your forgiveness in him? Lord, would you whisper forgiveness into the hearts of these brothers and sisters, myself included? Lord, we need a Savior, and we rejoice that you are him. Would we be humble in our brokenness and assured of your work to fix it? Maybe you're suffering this season, doubting this season. because of certain gifts or decorations, but because you, God, have come to earth to save and forgive in love. As we prepare him room, as we prepare you room, Lord, would you awaken us to our sin, but don't leave us there. Would we only marry our sin with your work to defeat it? 
our forgiveness in you. Lord, we love you. Uh, we trust you to do this work in us and through us. In your name we